Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're glad you're here with us this morning. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome everyone to our service this morning. We extend a special welcome to our visitors, and we're glad you're here. We invite you to enjoy stimulating coffee or decaf, conversation, and fellowship after the service in House and Hall. We welcome to our pulpit this morning Brian Ferguson, Reverend Brian Ferguson. Um, welcome him back to our pulpit. Brian was our intern minister here in 2008, and he's now the pastor of Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in San Marcos, Texas. The call to worship is from Annie Dillard. We are here to abet creation and to witness to it, to notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. Every Sunday, when we gather together, we repeat the words of our mission statement, which remind us what we're here for and what we're all about. So please join me. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Good morning, it's lovely to be back. I'd like to invite children 1 through 99 forward for the Words for All Ages. And if you're over 99, I'll come to you, okay? <laughs> so thank you for having me back. It's lovely to be back and seeing familiar and unfamiliar faces. It's always nice to see both. So have you ever imagined what you want to do when you grow up? You thought about what you want to do? Well, this story is about someone who imagined she could do things when everyone around her told her she couldn't do it. This, this story is about Olympia Brown, and she was a universalist minister. We're a Unitarian Universalist church, and she was a minister, a universalist minister. She, was, she was, grew up over 200 years, just less than 200 years ago, and at that time, there was no women ministers. Like, Reverend Meg is your minister. But there was a time where there was no women ministers. And not only that, women weren't allowed to vote either. And, you know, we have a big election coming up. You might have heard about it on coming up on Tuesday. Well, you know, women weren't allowed to vote in that. Well, what happened? This woman decided she thought, I can be a minister and I should be able to vote just like the men can. And her name was Olympia Brown. And so she decided she wanted to train to be a minister. And she had no examples of a woman minister. So what she did was she applied to seminary and she applied... Your seminary is where you get trained to be a minister. And she applied as O. Brown. And so she showed up. And she goes, well, you're a woman, and we've never had a woman here, but that's okay, you can, you can do it, but you won't, you won't be able to become a minister at the end, but you can get educated. So and she said, but since you're a woman, we have all the men memorize their speeches, but as a woman, you need to read your speech you know, for any of the classes. So she went to her first class. And she had her speech ready, and she went up there to deliver it. And she rolled it up and put it behind her back and delivered her whole speech from memory just to prove she could do it just like men. And then, so she decided, well, I want to become a minister. And the, the president of the seminary said, well, I don't think as a woman, we've got no women ministers. So she applied. She went to this congregation, and they decided, you're a great minister. We're going to ordain you and make you a minister. So she became the Reverend Olympia Brown. And so she had to apply for a job next. And she sent her application at Reverend O. Brown. And she showed up. 
And he said, well, you're a woman, and we didn't think we could have a woman minister, but since you're here, why don't you preach? And she preached, and they gave her the job. And now this was back in 1863, almost 150 years ago. She was the first woman minister in North America, and she was a universalist minister. But she didn't stop there. She, you remember I said she wanted to be able to vote too? Well, she started campaigning for the right for women to vote. And she campaigned, and she worked hard, and for 60 years she dedicated her life and her ministry to being able to vote. And in 1920, 1920, she finally got the right to vote. And she was 85 years old. And she was one of the first people to vote. And there was many other women who worked for the right to vote, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They never saw that. They worked tirelessly for it, but they never did it. But Olympia Brown was able to see that moment where she was able to vote. So not only was she one of the first women to vote, she was one of the first ministers in North America. And so I think that's great. She showed great imagination there because she saw that women could do just what men did. And she dedicated her life to doing that. So don't let anyone ever tell you that you can't do anything. If you imagine you can do something, work at it, you can probably do it. So thank you so much for listening. I think it's time for your religious education classes now. The words for our prayer and reflection this morning come from the Reverend Eugene Pickett. I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation and reflection. For the expanding grandeur of creation, worlds known and unknown, galaxies beyond galaxies, filling us with awe and challenging our imagination, we give thanks this day. For this fragile planet Earth, its times and tides, its sunsets and seasons, we give thanks this day. For the joy of human life, its wonders and surprises, its hopes and achievements, we give thanks this day. For our human community, our common past and future hope, our oneness transcending all separation, our capacity to work for peace and justice in the midst of hostility and oppression, we give thanks this day. For high hopes and noble causes, for faith without fanaticism, for understanding views not shared. We give thanks this day. For all who have labored and suffered for a fairer world, who have lived so that others might live with dignity and freedom, we give thanks this day. For human liberty and sacred rights, for opportunities to change and grow, to affirm and choose, for our capacity to care and nurture our planet, our home. We give thanks this day. We pray that we may live not by our fears, but by our hopes, not by our words, but by our deeds. This morning's reading comes from the heart of the enlightened by Anthony DeMello. 
The Buddha was once threatened with death by a bandit called Agulima. Then be good enough to fulfill my dying wish, said the, the Buddha. Cut off the branch of that tree. One slash of the sword and it was done. What now, asked the bandit. Put it back again, said the Buddha. The bandit laughed. You must be crazy to think that anyone can do that. The Buddha said, on the contrary, it's you who are crazy to think that you are mighty because you can wound and destroy. That is the task of children. The mighty know how to create and heal. Second story from the same book. A large truck was moving through a railway underpass and it got wedged in between the over the over the overbridge and the road. And all the efforts of the experts to extricate the truck from being stuck there proved useless and the traffic was backed up in both directions. A little boy kept trying to get the attention of the foreman, but was always pushed away. Finally, in sheer exasperation, the foreman said, I suppose you've come to tell us experts how to do this job. The child said, yes, I suggest you let some air out of the tires. I love the Buddhist idea that we have six senses. Buddhists, along with the normal five senses, consider the mind a sense, and particularly our imagination, our imaginative capacity to imagine something beyond reality. And when you, when you consider the, that hymn that we just sang, Wake Now My Senses, it talks about senses being reason, compassion, conscience, and ends with vision. Those are not what we normally think of senses. I love that idea of thinking of senses as capacities of the mind. And that last verse verse where we talk about, wake now my my vision of ministry clear, brighten my path with radiance clear, mingle my calling with all who would share, walk towards a planet transformed by our care. I think that's so much at the heart of what Unitarian Universalism is, walking towards a planet transformed by our care. It's often said that Unitarian Universalists do not have any saints, and I'm, I'm going to challenge that. I'm claiming two saints for us. I'm claiming St. Paul and St. John. Now, you, I'm probably thinking of someone different than you are. I'm thinking of Paul McCartney and John Lennon. <laughs> Because they are saints to me. And St. John Lennon says this. There are two basic motivating forces. Fear and love. When we are afraid, we pull back from life. When we are in love, we are open to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement and acceptance. Evolution and all hopes for a better world rest in the fearless and open-hearted vision of people who embrace life. Evolution and all hopes for a better world rest in the fearless and open-hearted vision of people who embrace life. If that's not religious language, I don't know what is. So I'm claiming St. John Lennon as a Unitarian Universalist saint, or at least for me. You can pick your own saints. And I think he's talking about vision there, and vision is capacity of our imagination to create a possibility beyond the reality that we have. 
And I think to create that reality, we often talk about we need to think outside the box. I think thinking outside the box is easy. I challenge us all to live outside the box. Because I think that's what John Lennon did. He lived outside the box through his promotion of love and peace and understanding. And I think that's a challenge for us as people of faith. And the fact that you are, on a Sunday morning, sitting in a Unitarian Universalist church, you're probably already living outside the box in some, some degree. You maybe didn't realize it. And we often talk about how important reason and experience is. And in our Unitarian Universalist tradition, we put great emphasis on reason and experience. But I don't believe we reason a way into change. I think change is a capacity of our imagination. It's a vision to imagine something we have not yet become. As Olympia Brown did in the Words for All Ages, she envisioned she could be a, unit, a universalist minister. She envisioned the rights for women to vote. And she had no example for that. That was something she created through her imagination. And even the great scientist Albert Einstein said this. He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited to all we now know and understand. While imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. And I think the gift of imagination is a religious sentiment. And I encourage us all as Unitarian Universalists to engage in that. Reason is vitally important in deciding what's morally right and morally wrong. Deciding what's healthy for us, what's not. But we need imagination to create that vision for the future that we all want to live into. And there's a shadow side to imagination, of course. You can project some fearful things into the future of worry about things that may or may not happen. So there's a shadow side. And how we see ourselves, how we imagine ourselves, is not always how other people see us. About two and a half years ago, many Unitarian Universalists went down to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, when the SB 1070 immigration law was being brought in there. And many Unitarian Universalists went down and were wearing a standing on the, life, standing on the side of love t-shirts those bright yellow mustard t-shirts that probably most of us have and wear far too often. And, you know, they were down there in um, Phoenix campaigning and a, a number of them got arrested, including our UUA president, Peter Morales, for some non-violent protests. And <laughs> I was at the General Assembly last year and Rebecca Parker from Star King tells the story of how when these people were getting arrested... This woman walked along and saw all these people and they're standing on the side of love t-shirts getting arrested and said, why are they arresting a softball team? <laughs> so how we see ourselves as these warriors of justice with our armour of the standing on the side of love and how other people see us may not always connect. And Reinhold Niebuhr says that no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our own standpoint. And I think when we consider imagination, I think we always need to consider and learn from our children. You watch children playing their imaginative games. And I know when I'm playing with my daughter, it's like, I'm not sure I can play baby for another three hours. But, you know, children have an imagination well beyond our capacity. And this is an area we can learn from. And like in the, in the story I read earlier, where it was a little boy suggested letting the tires out of the truck. 
None of the adults got that idea. And there's, there's another story of this young girl who really hated to draw. And she was in her art class, and the teacher was trying to get her to draw, and she couldn't. And then finally one day, the girl got really passionate, started drawing with real vigor and drawing. And the teacher went, well, that's great. It looks like you're really enjoying that drawing. She goes, oh, I'm loving this drawing. This is great. She went back to her and said, well, what are you drawing? She said, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher went, well, that's great, but none of us know what God looks like. And the girl said, they will when I finish this drawing. <laughs> you know, and so sometimes you're know, using imagination, but we may not always get it right, but we'll always have an answer. So. And then, you know, I think we often forget how often we use our imagination when you consider how we use our imagination with animals. Because we project stuff onto animals that may or may not be there. We come home and a dog comes jumping up to us. Oh, he's so pleased to see me. The dog's actually just hungry. <laughs> and a friend of mine, you know, she, it was a friend of mine's son. She was, she was Scottish. Her husband was Italian and they lived in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. <laughs> so it's very complicated. But the child was four years old and spoke all three languages. And we were walking along one day and she was, she was talking in French and then talking in Italian. And then saw this dog and started speaking in English. We said, well, why, why are you speaking in English? She said, well, all the animals in Disney movies speak English. <laughs> so imagination can take you to some great places. And I think we need imagination to solve the great problems that we have in the world. We look at problems like Syria. We look at some problems like the intractable problems in Israel and Palestine. We look at the problems of poverty, of hunger, of division in this country. We look at the problems of war. We look at the problems like the flooding that we just had with Hurricane Sandy in New York. And we have some problems that really require imagination. And I don't think we're going to solve them through reason alone. I think one of the challenges as people of faith, as Unitarian Universalists, is how can we still fall in love with this world, giving all the suffering and troubles and divisions we have? How can we still fall in love with this world, given the hunger and the poverty? How can we still fall in love with this world, with the great risks of global warming? That's a challenge for Unitarian Universalists. How can we still fall in love with this world? And you see so many activists, and I'm sure there's people in this room, activists who have worked for years, and it's so easy to get burnt out. How are we ever going to resolve those problems? Again, looking at Olympia Brown, who campaigned for over 60 years for the right for women to vote. And I think through a spiritual grounding, through our Unitarian Universalist faith, can help sustain us on this long-term work. And the moral imagination is that capacity to work towards something. We don't go out begrudgingly serving food to the homeless or campaigning for uh, better equality for women or campaigning for reproductive choice. We actually have a vision of what we want and we move towards that. And imagination allows that shift of worldview. I think to really solve these problems, we need to cross the great divisions and boundaries in our country. This presidential election has only amplified these deep divisions we have in our country. And we really need to cross those boundaries.
And I think a religious imagination can help us see ourselves in a relationship with those who disagree with us and maybe who even threaten us. And we talk in Unitarian Universalism that we love all people. That we love all humanity. Do we really realize the challenge that that means? It's very easy to love the people in this room. They're all pretty likable and lovable. Even the ones I don't know, I'm sure you're likable and lovable. But what about someone who may be the personification of evil for many of us? Someone like Adolf Hitler. Can we love him? Do we feel connected to him in any way? This person who was violent, caused huge destruction and death. Can we still hold him in love? I'm going to do, this sermon comes with homework. So I'm going to give you some homework here. I think all sermons should come with homework. But the, the, the Buddhist, American Buddhist Robert Thurman has got this exercise. I'm going to ask you to do it. He says, imagine Adolf Hitler in whatever your perception of hell is. Suffering eternal torment. Being punished with no end. In severe pain. And then look at the feelings inside of you when you imagine that. Really try and note your own feelings. And then there's another experiment. I'm going to ask you to go with, go with me in this one. Use your imagination. Imagine Adolf Hitler looking at all the destruction he did. Looking at the deaths, death camps. In the lotus position with tears running down his face and repenting for what he did. Regretting what he did. Try and imagine that. And then note your own feelings the second time. In preparing for the sermon, I did that as a meditation for 15 minutes over the last seven days. And what I noticed is, through the second one, my first one, the feelings were all, there's kind of vengeance and yes, I got you. You deserve that. The second one allowed me to touch a little more of the humanity of someone just acknowledging some regret for the huge devastation they caused. And we often talk about holding people in love. I think there's some people we hold in love a little further away than other people. But we still hold them in love. And I think we need to remember that those people who cause these great destructions and evils are still connected to us as humans. And it's important for us to remember that. So I encourage you to do that exercise. And when you do that exercise around someone like Adolf Hitler, you realize that the people around you are really not so bad. You can really let go some of the little things, the little niggly things that perhaps your minister says to you or your partner says to you or various things or the niggling things that family members are able to do or even maybe members of the church in this. So you know, try and do that meditation of holding people in love where it's really difficult because I think that's what our Unitarian Universalist faith calls us to do, is to hold all in love. So that was a thought experiment. I want to bring this a bit more into reality. Um, John Paul Lederer is a Mennonite um, peace negotiator, and he's worked in Central America and Africa and Cambodia. And he's got a fabulous story from Ghana, in the 1990s, it was a, almost on the brink of civil war in Ghana. 
And you're probably like myself, my knowledge of the history of Ghana was very limited. But it was basically two tribes. There was the Dagombas and the Kokombas. And the Dagombas had a strong chieftain uh, leader. And the Kokombas were more agrarian and lived in small villages. They didn't have this sense of a chieftain nation. And as we, we all know the horrible history of white slavery, or slavery by white people of Africans. Well, what we sometimes, and that's a, is a horrible history we need to acknowledge, but also there's many African tribes were involved in this. And the ones with chieftains tend to be, have more, be, be able to connect closer with the, the Western Europeans who came in and were often involved in enslaving their other tribes. And the Dagombas and Concombas have been historical rivals for a long time. So there was kind of this peace negotiation between the two because it was about to break out this civil war. And at the beginning of it, the chieftain from the Dagomba came in with a real air of superiority and would not address the other tribe, only address the mediators. And this was the beginning of the peace negotiations. He says this, look at them. Who are they that even I should be in the room with them? They do not even have a chief. Who am I to talk to? They are people with nothing who have just come from the fields and now attack us in our own villages. They could at least have brought an old man but look, they are just boys born yesterday. So you can imagine that wasn't the best start to the peace negotiations. And the young Kakomba man, who was the boy, as was described, asked to speak. And this was his response. He said, you are perfectly right, Father. We do not have a chief. And this has been our problems. The reason we react, the reason our people go on rampages and kill arises from this fact. We do not have what you have. Our, our conflict is not really about the land. I beg you to listen to my words, Father. I am calling you Father because we do not wish to disrespect you. You are a great chief, but what is left to us? Do we have no other means but this violence to receive the one thing we seek, to be respected and to establish our own chief, who could indeed speak to you as an equal? And I think that young man showed a great act of imagination to come there and be insulted like that and to respond with grace and respect. And his attitude affected the other chief. And the use of the word father, because the use of the word father in tribal culture in Ghana is the utmost respect. And he said, I call you fa- we call you father because we wish no disrespect. And the chief, the original one who issued insult, was moved, both by the person's attitude, respect, and the use of the word father. And this is what he said subsequently. He said, I have come to put your people in place, but now I feel only shame. Though I have insulted your people, you still call me father. It is you who speaks with wisdom. We have always looked down upon you, but we have not understood the denigration you suffered. I beg you, my son, to forgive me. So this was a tribal chief in front of outside peace negotiators and mediators with a historical enemy and with his own tribal tribe there admitting shame and apologizing. I think that is a great act of religious imagination. Take a situation like that and admit I was wrong. And there was a great act of the young Kokomban man not to you know, react Towards disrespect with disrespect. And I think that's where religious imagination comes in. We can imagine a different response 
to the insults, to the difficult situations. And this moment, this moment that I just talked about, has been transformative for Ghana. There's still problems there, but they averted the civil war and they've been moving towards peace. They have a democracy in Ghana now. And while there's still struggles, this moment between these two people that were able to show that imagination were able to transform history. We often think of history as a big sweeps of movements. And it is. But there are transformational moments. And when imagination can break into those transformational moments, history can change. And progress does happen through the blood, sweat and tears of many people. Many people like us. But we work towards the vision of those great leaders. Those great leaders like Olympia Brown. Those great leaders like Martin Luther King. I mean, Martin Luther King didn't come in and say to us, I've got a proposal I want you to think about. <laughs> Martin Luther King said, I had a dream. He did not come in and say, I have something I'd like you to refer to a subcommittee. <laughs> he said he had a dream. He had this vision that was created from his imagination. A dream where people would be judged not by the color of their skin, by the content of their character. And that was Martin Luther King's vision that we have been working towards for almost 50 years now and there's still work to be done. It's said that bread for myself is a material question. Bread for my neighbor is a spiritual one. And that is religious work. Wanting for others what we have for ourselves, be it equality be it food, be it health care, be it choice, be it humanized legal system for immigrants. And there's one final thing I want to leave you with. is um, a Quaker sociologist, Elise Boulding, has this wonderful idea. She talks about the long now or the 200-year present. The interesting thing about this is she talks about how consider the oldest person you have ever known, the oldest person who ever influenced you. And for me, it was my gran. It was was really cool. She was born the 1st of January, 1900. So every year was her birthday. So you could always, you always knew what age she was. I'd love to say she was a profound, intelligent, wise person. She was a racist. She was a religious bigot. She was sexist towards women. But she was still influential in me. And even for all those faults, I knew she loved me. She loved my brother. And she loved my dad. And she loved my mum. So this person who had all these flaws. So I imagine her and my far left holding my mum's hand. Holding my hand. Me holding my daughter's hand, Isla. And Isla's children beyond that. And my daughter was born in 2003. So she might live... 2100. Her child may certainly live to 2100. And my gran was born in 1900. So there's a 200 year span of people who influenced me, who I'll influence. And we tend to think of the interdependent web of all existence as in space. I think we need to start thinking about it in time. And if we see ourselves as a middle link in that chain of 200 years, we will start thinking very differently. If we see ourselves not as the end destination of evolution in history, 
that as a link in evolution in history, to take the wisdom from 1900 and pass it on to people in the 2100. I think we had a very different attitude to many things, especially around environmental issues and climate change. So I think, I love that idea of the 200 year present, because I think in peace negotiations like we heard in Ghana, you need to think in historical terms. You can't just think in the now. That idea of the 200 year present can be very powerful. I think the meaningful religious life is to live out our imaginations, not our limitations. So my prayer, my prayer for each of us is that we consider how to yoke our imaginations to the common good and dedicate ourselves to finding ways to put something creative out into the world. Vision is using our imagination to create the possibility of hope for those who don't have hope. Imagine a world where everyone's basic needs are met. Imagine a world where people's sexual orientation is not a concern. Imagine a world where everyone has health care. Imagine a world where women have full equality of opportunity and are not continually sexually objectified in the media. Imagine a world where war not a result of a lack of imagination or vengeance. When we connect with our own pain and suffering and when we use our religious imagination to connect with our higher values, to connect with those causing our pain and suffering and help heal them and repair our world, that is a possibility we all have through imagination. As we leave this place and go towards the days and weeks and months ahead, let's take with us the best of the spirit we have found here, the warmth of community. Let us live not by our limitations, but by our imagination and take a vision of warmth, of care, of graciousness and of joy to the world. Amen. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.